You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday the 30th of May. It's 7am and in the studio today you're joined by myself, Fung and Carnegie. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. I'm just recovering from that earthquake we just um, (laughs) experienced. Yes, so tell me, were you asleep? What happened? No, I was wide awake. I was just um, playing Zelda in bed (laughs) on my Switch. And, um, you know, I was really in the zone of the game. and It was like like a 4D experience. It was, exactly right. And I didn't understand what was happening for so long, I feel. Yeah, I was also awake and I, I was like, what is that? You know, it could be a really big truck, it could yeah. be like a plane going by. And there's nothing more reassuring than like a lot, lots of strangers on the internet telling yeah. us that. I know, know we they, all, they all felt the same thing. Exactly. We went straight to Twitter and it was just, anyone feel an earthquake? Well, because I went to just to the internet to see if there was anything on the news, but I don't think anyone could update no. any of yeah, the news sites exactly. quick enough. <laughs> I kept refreshing, but yeah. there was nothing. So, yes, thank you, Twitter, for for being exactly. there. Was it weird being in an apartment? We are on the ground floor, so it didn't feel, oh, well, I don't know any difference. So yeah. it, it felt okay, but the dogs were definitely yeah. a bit spooked. One of them was really spooked, oh. and the other one just couldn't care. <laughs> And we were like, are you okay? She's like, leave me alone. I feel like that's your dog's personalities, isn't <laughs> it? Just true. in general. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. One of them, very frightened, needing a lot of cuddles and reassurance. Yeah. And the other one's like, yeah, it's fine. I know. Yeah. Um, the earthquake a couple of years ago, I was on an, in an eighth floor apartment. Wow. That was terrifying. Like the whole building swayed. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was scary. This, on the other hand, it's okay. It was part of your Zelda experience. It just added to my... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, let's go through what we have on today's show. We're going to start by replaying you a discussion that Alana Mountain, uh, who is a forest campaigner with Friends of the Earth Melbourne and host of Dirt Radio, had with Eva Davis-Jones, who is a citizen scientist and forest activist. They talked about the new protest laws that have come into effect in Victoria, as well as the impacts of native logging on our forests. Then at 7.30, we'll be speaking with Nicole Calm from uh, the Monash University's XYX Lab, um, they've recently created a new interactive experience in both Melbourne and in Venice called Consenting Cities, which asks the question, what can we do as a society to address gender inequality and improve life on our streets for the most vulnerable? 
And then after that, we'll be hearing from Catherine Strong from Extinction Rebellion, who spoke with Annie from Solidarity Breakfast about the three-day campaign over the weekend uh, where Extinction Rebellion occupied Nam in the name of a climate emergency. So some really important discussions had there. Uh, Afterwards, we'll replay an excerpt from this week's episode of Women on the Line. I spoke with May, Fahana, Fazilat and Veena, who are all members of Another Collective, which is a community of Muslim women creatives that are uh, trying to navigate the intersection of faith, identity and culture. And finally, we'll be hearing from Sana Deswat from the Nuclear Free Collective. I spoke with Sana the other day about the art auction that's coming up at the end of June called 25 Years Since Jabaluka Blockade No to AUKUS. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back with some news right after this. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394198377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. That was a message there about Radiothon that is coming up next month. Stay tuned. We're going to be uh, campaigning pretty hard for that in the coming weeks. Um, So if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter, make sure you stay tuned for what's to come. For this morning's news headlines, we wanted to focus on one particular piece of news. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is what was visiting Australia um, and you know as someone as a diaspora Indian person I've been watching with <laughs> it's it's just been a spectacle um, so Modi held a rally in Sydney last Wednesday where more than 20,000 supporters came from across the country. Um, It was hosted by the Indian Australian Diaspora Foundation, or the IADF, and part of the experience was privately chartered flights, which were publicized as yatras, which is the Hindi word um, for pilgrimage, um, you know, which brought supporters from all over the country to Sydney. I find the use of language very interesting. You know, it it gives uh, Modi sort of a greater-than-life persona. Um, And, yeah, the rally was very reminiscent of Trump for me. Um, Brought back, you know, the wonderful memories of um, the Trump era where Trump was selling out entire stadiums and um, it felt more like a gimmicky kind of pop show than than a political anything. So um, just quickly, yeah. what was the focus of this quote-unquote rally? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because it's very hard to tell. Um, the kind of vague focus is this, uh, 
in the strengthening ties between India and Australia, which is a really broad thing. Um, you know, Modi was using phrases like, India and Australia is entering T20 mode, which is um, a cricket reference to the, you know, 2020 matches, which are like really fast-paced um, 20 over matches that are like a spectacle. And so I feel like, yeah, another interesting use of language and again, very Trump-like where it's like, I'll just use all these phrases and the and these kind of broad like focus like wouldn't would we call it a focus i don't know um and like hope that people just don't look don't look further is the is the vibe i get can you contextualize uh modi's visit for us in terms of what's been happening in india and also the tensions that have been happening here in so-called australia yeah so it's it's really interesting um in india so he modi has been um, in government since 2014, so it's been a while. Uh, and at at first, there was a lot of fervor, you know, because um, the BJP, his his party, hadn't ever hadn't won in in years and years and years. And so um, everybody had put all their faith into this, and there were a lot of promises of um, economic prosperity, primarily. And the government still claims all these years later that its policies have addressed food security, banking, pensions, and have lifted India out of poverty, um, as well as put India on the global map properly for the first time, which is hugely popular with the diaspora, as we can see, with the 20,000 supporters in Sydney. However, in reality, it's super polarised in India. So legislation such as the Citizenship Amendment Bill has been criticised because it's said to unlawfully discriminate against Muslims. It kind of gives the government, you know, the free hand to discriminate wherever they'd like. Um, They also had the farm bills deregulating agricultural markets, which were abandoned after only one more, after more than one year, because there were fervent protests from farmers who... Well, like this is absolutely untenable for all of us. Um, Modi's government has even been accused of attending, attempting to rewrite history to fit its Hindu nationalist agenda. So textbooks in schools for young kids, you know, like history of the Mughal rule, for example, which were Muslim rulers that ruled India for a number of years, have been erased. Um, opposition, so Gandhi... Mahatma Gandhi, who led India to freedom against the British, um, he opposed Hindu nationalism, and that's been removed from textbooks, so it doesn't seem like that's the case. Um, You know, anti-Muslim sentiment has risen extremely. Um, They've changed the names of many cities and roads and places that were Muslim or just not overtly Hindu in many cases or when the British had colonized they'd been anglicized and they'd been they've been changed back to their Hindu origin names um so just a lot of things the the name thing is a bit ironic because uh, Modi is super popular in Gujarat his home state and the main city of Gujarat is Ahmedabad which is actually Ahmedabad which is uh, translates to the city of Am- Ahmad from the Mughal era. So I just find <laughs> all of this like, um, yeah, freedom of press is at an all-time low. Um, according to the World Press Freedom Index from this year, India ranks at 
1.161 from a total of 180 countries, which is a huge do- drop from 131 pre-BJP in 2012. Wow. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot to have occurred. Um, and a lot of, so much of that is so terrifying as well for, it, it, it for really large, is. yeah communities over there. Yeah, and just the difference between what's happening in India and how people feel in India versus how the diaspora reacts is also super interesting. I think Modi has really relied on the diaspora for funding and a popularity boost because he's losing further in India. Um, yeah, yeah, and then just even looking at the media sort of reception, but also just the general reception of of Modi recently welcoming with open arms yeah. and even partnering with universities to put on visits and things like that, seemingly ignoring all of the human rights issues that are going on uh, at the hands of the government. Yeah, the I moment. mean, so. interestingly, um, Penny Wong recently said that, um, you know, Australia is uh, seeking to strengthen its relationships with India economically with the new free, free trade agreement. And so, and then when she was questioned about the human rights she said that's a matter for the indian legal system australia and india are close friends and we are comprehensive strategic partners so you know it's very disappointing to see um the labor government just welcome him with open arms um and ignore what's going on um there was a documentary the modi famously doesn't do interviews um but before he was prime minister the bbc made a documentary on him and his alleged um, role in the uh, riots in Gujarat, which saw a lot of, over like thousands of Muslims die. And um, the documentary was screened in Parliament House a day after his rally. So I do find that also really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know what's going what's gonna to come of any of this. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very disheartening to see the reception that he received and the like pomp with which he's been <laughs> conducting himself when you know the reality is quite quite different mm. well we'll be keeping an eye on this relationship <laughs> between australia and india and i'm sure you'll give us plenty of updates there well thank you so much for giving us an analysis of the visit and also contextualising Modi's visit in terms of what's been happening in India for the last few years really does highlight how ridiculous the whole thing was and especially, like you said, the pomp and the stadium tour and all of that reception, uh, quite bizarre. All right, shall we go to a song? Let's do that. Um, So this song is called Stand Your Ground. Oh, I think we're going to go actually to Greta Ray. <laughs> All right, let's first. go to Greta Ray. So Greta Ray is one of my favorite um, Nam-based singers, and this is her new song "Heartbreak Baby." Um, Greta will be touring at the end of the year, so keep an eye out for tickets if you are interested to see her. Great. Cherry blossom everywhere, and yet another love has come to grief but none of it is new now predictably again i've been let down been the bigger person breathed light through my teeth while i 
time to remain intact Gotta make a list, gonna face the facts Soldier on to save me No, I won't be weak, but I won't be mad Kind of wish I was, but it's mostly just sad If there's one thing that I know, it's that I've got it in the bag Do you blame me? Greta Ray with Heartbreak Baby. I'm loving seeing Greta go back to her poppy roots. We're going to start today's episode by revisiting a discussion that Alana Mountain, Friends of the Earth Melbourne Forest campaigner and host of Dirt Radio, had with Eva Davis-Jones, citizen scientist and forest activist, about the new protest laws that have come into effect in Victoria. Under these new laws, activists and citizen scientists monitoring and protecting Victorian forests and wildlife face hefty fines. Alana and Eva also discuss the impacts of native logging on these important ecosystems in our forests. You're listening to Dirt Radio on 3CR with Alana Mountain. I'm talking to Eva Davis-Jones, 
she took part in a mass action this weekend across the state for forests. So good morning, Eva. Yeah, good morning, Alana. Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what happened on the weekend. Some new laws came into effect and these are anti-protest laws that affect um, citizen science and, and forest protests and there's been a huge amount of community opposition to these laws and so on the day that they came into effect on Saturday, almost 200 community members showed up uh, like statewide to participate in a mass survey action to sort of show their opposition and uh, there was a number of locations across the state where people gathered and um, participated in citizen science to oppose the laws and yeah it was a really positive event. I believe the five sites across Victoria were Wombat State Forest, Tulangi, Alberton West, Powtown, Colhoun in East Gippsland which is pretty incredible and apparently there was almost 200 people that showed up for forest on that date which is a really amazing effort from everyone in the community. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about what these new laws uh, will look like and what kind of penalties people will face for getting out into the forests? So the new laws, they basically add to or or increase the the current laws against people protesting um, and entering what's called timber harvesting safety zones or exclusion zones in around logging operations. And it could mean that if you, are, for instance, detect a threatened species within a zone that's, that's had a timber harvesting safety zone put up, then you could be receiving over $11,000 fine or having prohibited items potentially over a $22,000 fine. And there's, there's other additions to these penalties such as restricting people from entering certain areas of forest if they are charged with these offences and um, potential prison time even. Wow, that's so intense and really unjust. You'd think that the, the people who are going out looking for threatened species and often they're finding these species that are slipping through the cracks of government surveys, they should be really, you know, handed an award, not handed fines in this instance. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this has come um, as been a, a almost national um, trend lately for governments to be putting in place these anti-protest laws and it really shows the government's lack of priorities that they're choosing to target the people who are trying to send a message rather than um, just acting on these important issues. Absolutely. It seems that instead of penalising the departments or you know government logging industry, Vic Forest, that has broken the law time and again, which has been proven through multiple community court cases that have arisen over the past few years as a result of community action, uh, they haven't faced any consequences, but instead peaceful protesters and citizen scientists are now looking at huge fines and potentially you're in jail if they go into a coop and find these critical species that need to be protected. So do you think these kinds of laws and harsher consequences are going to impact people's desire to go out? Or do you think that this weekend is a clear display that yeah, people just aren't going to stop. 
Yeah, I don't think that these laws coming into effect has dampened at all the community's spirit and uh, desire to show up for the forests and advocate for the, for the protection of the environment at all. Um, I think, if anything, it, it really shows that protesting and community opposition to these these ways that the government's managing the forest has been effective um, because otherwise they wouldn't be going to the length to try to stop people from having a voice on this issue. So, mm. uh, yeah, I think um, the event on Saturday really showed that, yeah, people are, are in good spirits and they're really willing to continue to um, stand up for the forest and, yeah, advocate for their protection. And what were some of the things that you found on Saturday, Eva? Because I believe you were there for a day survey and a night survey too. Yeah, so um, the Tulangi daytime survey was was great. We had about 45 people and it was really just a a time to do some citizen science. Um, We used the iNaturalist app, which is a really accessible way for anyone to be participating in citizen science. Um, You know, the night surveys were looking for threatened species such as the greater glider and um, that's a really a really common way to protect to protect forests in Victoria because they're they're a threatened species but I think um, citizen science generally is really important to monitor and and document all species and to advocate for biodiversity generally and and ecology and and the forest ecosystem that's really impacted by logging. Absolutely. And what are some of the impacts of logging on those more sensitive species that maybe you've seen in your work? Because I know that you you do a lot of bush regen work and, yeah, you're really into the plants. So could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so wet forest is an extremely unique ecosystem and it's an ecosystem that thrives when it's left undisturbed. You know, naturally, plants would regenerate after maybe a big tree falls in the forest or there's a a cool fire that goes through the forest. But um, big disturbances like like clear fell logging or really hot bushfires um, really heavily impact these kinds of ecosystems. And what you see is a regenerating forest that's much drier, often less biodiverse and, and less resilient to things like climate change. And by looking at some of these understory species, you can really see the impacts of historic logging and historic fires when there's a real lack of um, older undergrowth species and certain species that are indicators of uh, really wet forest and forest that is old and undisturbed. So that was kind of what we were looking for and um, teaching people about in the day survey. And, yeah, we, we, we had a look at some forests that had regenerated from fires I think in 1926, and um, you could see that that forest was really at a point where it was starting to become resilient enough to hopefully be able to be resilient to climate change and things like that. And yeah, it's sort of it's really important that we protect those those sorts of forests from logging because um, otherwise they're only going to be drier and more susceptible to bushfires in the future. So. Yeah, it was really positive. It was a really nice day and it's always beautiful to see the forest in the daytime and learn from other people and I think that is something people 
are really enjoying coming together and meeting people with a wealth of knowledge and sharing what they know about the forests. It's it's really special and it's such a big aspect of the campaign to save native forests. We've witnessed yeah, several community court cases over the years where they've heavily depended on community um, activists and citizen scientists to go out there and, and keep an eye on the forests and, and document what, what they're seeing and it would be devastating if that wasn't able to continue as a result of these laws. But that isn't the sense that I'm gathering from the community at this point. Nothing is going to stop people getting out there and making sure that we know what's happening in the forests. So if folks want to get involved, Eva, how how would you go about getting involved with a survey in the near future? There's a number of groups that participate in citizen science and host workshops or nights out doing citizen science, um, groups such as King Lake Friends of the Forest, uh, Wildlife of the Central Highlands, some groups out in out at the Wombat Forest are doing citizen science as well, um, looking for threatened species. So, yeah, um, I'm sure even just looking through the Victorian Forest Alliance website, you'll find different avenues to get out into the forest and... Um, be amongst it. Amazing. Thanks. We just heard from Alana Mountain from Dirt Radio speaking to Eva Davis-Jones about the new anti-protest laws here in Victoria. You can catch Dirt Radio every Tuesday from 9.30 to 10am. We're going to go into a song now. This is Stand Your Ground by Goanna. It's from their 1982 album Spirit of Place. And I love this track because the chorus is all about standing your ground and not letting anyone hold you down, which is perfect after listening to that interview with Eva. So here's Goanna. They're pounding at your door Telling you your business And what you're doing it for They might have a warrant Might have a law on their side But when they come with daggers in their eyes Don't take them Stand your ground We're all on the one way wrong 
and that was Stand Your Ground by Goanna. Consenting Cities is a powerful new interactive experience created by Monash University's XYX Lab, currently showing in both Venice and in Melbourne. It provides new data on gendered inequality and asks the audience, what can we do to address gendered inequality and improve life on our streets for the most vulnerable? XYX Lab's Research Director, Associate Professor Nicole Carms, is joining us this morning to tell us more about Consenting Cities. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Hi there. Nice to be here. So can you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about XYX Lab and the work that you do there? Mm. So we're a research lab based at Monash University. We're architects and communication designers and interaction designers. And we look at the relationship between public space and gender. So that means we're kind of exploring how women and gender diverse people and the LGBTIQ plus community, what are their experiences of cities and how do they experience spaces differently and what can we do mostly to make them feel safer and have more access to cities. Incredible. That's really important research. Um, what led to the creation of Consenting Cities? Well, we work in a lot of mediums. So we do a lot of work with local government and with state government. But because we have this artistic and design kind of background and we're allowed to do research, often we work in exhibition format as well. So uh, the work in Venice and what's being shown here in Melbourne is part of that exhibition work where we like to kind of address tricky issues with public audiences. And it really means we can explore the kind of visual content and the research in a more fulsome way. So it's just another kind of audience mode for us to present our work. So this um, project, you it's mentioned that um, there's a lot of new data on gender inequality mm-hmm. that has come about from your research um, at the XYX Lab. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this and how it's explored in Consenting Cities? Yeah, so the current work that we're showing is a work that explores and documents and actually visualises international research into gendered experiences, particularly around safety in cities. So the work is incredibly beautiful. It's a really graphic work that uses a augmented reality component to kind of illuminate particular statistics. And some of those statistics we've gathered in our research, but they're also from colleagues and researchers internationally. But I kind of the the beautiful work kind of disguises some quite confronting data around what is happening for women and gender diverse people in cities. So there's a kind of connection to how this data is enmeshed in the artwork, but it's really kind of asking us to think very carefully about what we might do with data to start to address the challenges of gender inequity in cities. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. You know, we do engage with this data, uh, you know, in the news um, and in kind of more um, dry uh, mediums. And so it's really interesting for audiences to be able to experience it differently. Um, Can you talk about how the audience will experience this data differently through augmented reality? Well, I guess um, there's a website associated with the work, so your listeners could log on to XYX Lab Consenting Cities and see the kind of website component, but this has a kind of access to the kind of coding that works within the work. So essentially, like we've been doing all through COVID, you use your phone to activate particular graphic images within the artwork, and then those kind of illuminate the, the data within the artwork. And I guess our idea is that by making this data visible and by making it accessible, we can really start to see both ourselves in the data, but also start to have some accountability around how we might start to use this data. 
you would know, your audience would know that often data just sits in reports um, and in documents that we don't necessarily activate in really clear ways. So we're really keen to make sure that the data around this work and around these experiences is really clear to the general public and then we kind of leverage that for our stakeholders. Some of um, the stats that, you know, are on the website are, you know, nine out of 10 victim survivors of sexual violence in Australia don't report to the police and one in six complaints about the public transport protective service officers related are related to predatory behaviour. Um, this is, you know, what women and gender diverse people experience in physical spaces, but uh, Consenting Cities also explores uh, the lack of safety in online spaces as well. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, there's a really interesting statistic. I don't have every single statistic in front of me, but one of the ones I do have is that one in two Australians with a disability report being a victim of image-based abuse. And I mean, that's, you know, there, there's some really important um, things that we need to understand and start to act on. So, yeah, I think we also have started with this work to approach the digital space, which, you know, is a public space and is a is a space where there is a lot of um, uh, behaviour that we need to start to think very carefully about. So, yeah, that's also one of the forests that we're exploring. Absolutely. Um, and how was... Uh, you've just come back from Venice, I believe. How was um, mm-hmm. Consenting Cities there? Look, it's fantastic. Venice, uh, for the Biennale, is just a huge... I like to call it a kind of theme park for architects and designers. So it's a very busy time and there's lots of work and we're part of a satellite show at the Palazzo Mora uh, where we're showing this work. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot to see and it's on until November. So there's plenty of time if people are in Europe or need a reason to head to Venice and don't we all, uh, then, yeah, that, that work is on for the next six months. Incredible. Um, and what do you think that you know we can do as a society to address how unsafe women and gender diverse people feel in public and in online spaces? Our work is always with um, working with the community. So these aren't my feelings, they're the feelings of the women and gender diverse people that we work with. And increasingly what we're hearing is that we really need to build communities um, and build community initiatives so that there's a feeling of being included. We also know that communication is really important. So that's about having signals within our built environment so people know how to behave and that they're, what the expectations around behaviour are. And then a really important part that's quite a practical thing around the built environment is really thinking carefully about how we maintain and design infrastructure because they're very treacherous spaces for women and gender diverse people and we really need to be making sure that they're not feeling fear in those spaces. So there's some tricky design work to do around those spaces. Absolutely, and really important work as well. Um, Is there a way that the public can help in gathering more information about public safety for women and gender diverse people? Well, actually, with this particular exhibition, you can use the app to kind of share images and notate spaces where you feel safe or unsafe. So I just encourage people to log on to xyxlab-consentingcities, one word, .com, and they could have a little hunt around that and see if there's something that they want to contribute. Essentially, you kind of upload something through Instagram, but the instructions are on the website. Amazing. And where can listeners find out more and experience Consenting Cities? So um, it's on in Melbourne in the QV Centre at No Vacancy just for the next few days until June 3rd. And as I say, if you want to go to Venice or you're going to be nearby, it's on at the Palazzo Mora, which is in Carnareggio until November 26th. Amazing. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us and talking us through Consenting Cities. Thanks so much for having us.
So that was XYX Labs Research Director, Associate Professor Nicole Carms, talking to us about Consenting Cities, which is on in Melbourne until the 3rd of June at No Vacancy Gallery, Level 3 at the, on the QV, QV building. Um, for more information, head to xyx-consentingcities.com. We're going to play another track for you now. This is by Moju. It's the song Change Has To Come and it's from their 2023 album Oro Plata Matter. And if you haven't already, please check it out because it's a great album. you hear the bell signal the warning here comes the storm best we be gone out to the street where the legions are forming i heard the call more than ever before if we just scream on our screens we will forget what it So much deeper than that There are brothers and sisters Whose burdens are stacked So it's breaking their backs If we just scream at our screens We will forget what it means Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. 
a zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Following on from the discussion that Eva Davis-Jones had with Alana from Dirt Radio about new protest laws, Annie from Solidarity Breakfast spoke with Catherine Strong from Extinction Rebellion as they occupied Nam, Melbourne over the weekend. In this discussion, Catherine gives Annie an update from the three-day campaign in the city centre, and they also discuss the hypocrisy of implementing new anti-protest laws during a climate emergency. Here's Annie. We've got Catherine Strong on the line from Extinction Rebellion. G'day, Catherine. How are you going? Uh, not too bad, thanks. How are you? Good. So there was a bit of an incident at the camp, you were saying. Uh, well, I'm at the camp right now. So just for anybody who doesn't have the background context, Extinction Rebellion has three days of action going on. We're calling it Occupy for Climate. And we've been in Parliament Gardens um, with uh, some camping gear where we were hoping to camp out for three nights. Uh, basically, we've been getting a lot of grief from the council and from the police. And at the moment, I am in the uh, the garden, and there is uh, oh, the the streets outside the gardens are lined with police cars. The gardens are full of cops. Uh, there's a small number of climate protests here because most of them have gone down to an event that was happening down by the river. So basically, they've waited to a point where the protesters are vastly outnumbered. Uh, they are doing things like a young woman went to go to the toilet. And a bunch of cops and, and officers from the council chased her down, have left her absolutely in tears. She just wanted to go to the toilet. They thought she was absconding or some nonsense like that uh, and have harassed her to the point that she is uh, uh, very distressed. Um, we've been told that we have uh, two hours to clear out of here or all of our gear will be confiscated. Um, and all we are trying to do is just do some protests around a very, very, very serious issue that nobody is taking action on. Uh, in the jurisdiction of a council that has apparently declared a climate emergency but is refusing to actually act on those words and is shutting down climate protests. Uh, so, so um, are you asking for people to go down there and assist you? Uh, if people wanted to come down and stand with us, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, we had a rally that was supposed to be starting at 11 o'clock today and we will do our absolute standards to get back protests to still happen. So if people can't get down here now and they want to come to that protest instead and stand with us to show that this is not okay, um, then that would be absolutely amazing. Um, uh, and, I mean, we're just hoping at this point that that protest is not going to be shut down. All right, so the rallies, where's the rally going to be at? Uh, the rally was going to start here at Parliament Gardens um, and uh, walk, uh, do a route through the city to, uh, to the State Library. Um, we have a bunch of speakers from different organisations, not just Extinction Rebellion, um, we have uh, Adam Baird is coming to speak. We've got a number of socialist groups speaking as well as forest groups um, and Blockade Australia is talking at that as well. Um, so uh, we're, it, it's going to be a great event regardless. We are, are going to make something happen at that time. 
Um, but yes, if anybody did want to give us support right now at our camp at Parliament Gardens, that would also be appreciated. So, so what's been happening over the the previous two days? Because this is the this is the culmination. This is the last day of the uh, Occupy. That, that's right. Um, so on the first day on Thursday, uh, we did some disruptive actions uh, where we took a number of intersections in the city uh, and moved through the city. Also visited a few uh, organisations that we know are responsible for doing damage when it comes to climate and environmental issues, such as the Commonwealth Bank, who are putting a lot of money into fossil fuel projects, and also uh, Origin Energy, which just goes without saying that they, they have a big part to play in all of this stuff. Um, we had uh, did uh, less disruptive stuff yesterday uh, because of Sorry Day, but we did go and camp out in the middle of the city, not camp, literally, but had a pop-up uh, event there which was talking about how we can think differently about our futures, uh, what we could be doing differently and how we don't just need to take what's happening at the moment for granted. Uh, and then, yes, a bunch of canoes on the Yarra River right now with a message about climate and then the slow march and later on today... Uh, also, uh, on rock uh, event where where we're just going to be. Well, the idea was to have a bit of fun with it, but whether the cops want to let us have fun is another matter altogether. Of course, it's interesting, isn't it? The incredible pushback when, in actual fact, we are in a climate emergency. That's right. Uh, and as I said before, the, uh, the the council, Melbourne City Council, has declared a climate emergency. Uh, we're still looking for them to actually act as though that's the case and letting peaceful protests. So Extinction Rebellion, non-violent, strictly non-violent, peaceful group, uh, not letting peaceful protesters get out on the streets and get that message out there, uh, we think is absolutely going against what it is that they said they stand for. It's fascinating the uh, use of legislation to uh, push down uh, demonstrations and build it around bylaws where people aren't allowed to obstruct uh, um, footpaths and stuff like that. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's it's built around the idea that people need to be obedient. That's absolutely correct. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protests. So we've been in Queensland, we've been in Tasmania, we've seen just recently in South Australia, just last week, they've uh, vastly increased the penalties for people who undertake peaceful protests. And, of course, we've seen it here in Victoria with the forest legislation that was put through, where again, uh, the fines for people who go in and, and take action to try and stop the destruction that's happening in those forests has been increased as well. I mean, fortunately, we've also seen the, the forest, uh, the logging uh, sounds like it's going to be shut down, but, uh, but that doesn't, you know, negate the point that uh, across the country, uh, protesters are being targeted. We are seeing repression of peaceful protests. And at a time when we need protests more than ever, because our governments are showing us that they are not taking action on this issue. Right? So the Labor government isn't as bad as the Liberal government, but the Liberal government was the worst government in the world, pretty much. So that's not a high bar to get over. Um, and they are still saying that they are going to be approving coal and gas projects. Uh, they've given the green light to Beedaloo. We've seen that they're doing it under dodgy circumstances. We cannot trust them to do the right thing by us. We need to take this issue into our own hands. We need to show that we are powerful. They know that we are powerful and that is why they are repressing us. So everyone needs to get on the streets behind this issue. And uh, what's the feeling in the camp? I know that people are feeling a bit uh, pushed around by the police. That's the whole point of having long lines of police around you. But uh, what's the actual uh, sensibility? Um, uh, and people are feeling defiant. Like we, we, we know that this is, this is public space. We have a right to be in public space. 
undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. And using, as you say, uh, these, these, these feeble bylaws and, and like anything that they can do to get at us. Uh, it, it, it's petty. Um, it, it's showing an ugly side of both the council and, and just, you know, the way that the police obviously can just be deployed uh, by the state or by the council in this, in this instance to sort of do their bidding. Um, and the bidding that they're doing is on, on the side of the, 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 the wrong side of history, so put it that way. So, yeah. Well, they'd, they'd say it was about public order. Um, have, you, have you been getting any responses from uh, the general public, as it were? Um, look, as, as always, when we take to the streets and do the things that we do, we get a mixed response. Um, there is always uh, some people who are very uh, upset and angry that we're doing what we're doing. Um, people don't like to be disrupted, um, but we appreciate that. Um, we, we know that that's not great. Um, we, we sort of tend to, to respond with, look, um, this is something we do out of love, because if you think this is disruption, <laughs> go talk to somebody and live more. But we also do always get a lot of positive responses. So for every person who says something angry to us, we, we usually get two or three people who give us thumbs up to give us a positive response, happy toots on the horn rather than angry toots. So, so there is definitely a lot of support for what we do out there. Thanks very much for taking some time out to talk to us, Catherine. Thank you for, thank you for hearing me. Thank you. So that was Catherine Strong from Extinction Rebellion speaking to Annie from Solidarity Breakfast about the three-day Occupy for Climate Melbourne campaigns that took place over the weekend. To find out more about Extinction Rebellion, you can go to ozrebellion.earth. Thank you to Annie McLaughlin for that report. Next up, we're going to play a old classic song. This is from Christina Anu's 2001 album Stylin' Up, and it is called Island Home.
That was uh, Island Home by Christine Anu. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. As you just heard there, Radiothon is coming up next month. We'll be doing lots of campaigning across shows. Uh, Definitely, if you can, donate via the website or call us or drop in. um, And definitely stay tuned to Tuesday Breakfast and breakfast shows across the week. Next up, we are going to replay Fung's uh, Women on the Line episode from this week. For this week's episode of Women on the Line, Fung spoke with May, Farhana, Fazilat and Vina, who are all members of another collective, a community of Muslim women creatives that navigates the intersection of faith, identity and culture. In this excerpt, Farhana and Fazilat share their experiences of being part of a creative design industry where the white male-dominated perspective is seen as the standard and may reflect on the importance of having community spaces where people can freely be themselves. Fahana, can you tell us more about existing within this industry where it is white, male-dominated, you know, there's a lot of competition. What's your take on being a part of this industry? I think my first exposure to the industry was probably when I was in design school so I studied at RMIT which was lovely I enjoyed it but I think it was the first time I got to understand the landscape and I guess the existing structures that were in place I noticed a couple things first of all most of my tutors are white cis men um, who are kind of seen as more reputable within the industry but also kind of seen as the standard. And a lot of my peers also came from, I guess I'd say more privileged backgrounds. Um, A lot of them came from private schools. A lot of them had like really great art and design resources in high school, which allowed them to enter this course. It was a portfolio, so like a selective course based on your portfolio. So I kind of saw the advantage they had Yeah, even though we were all in uni, I already started to feel where privilege played a role. And I think a big part of that was like knowing people and making connections. A lot of my peers were sometimes born into those connections. Their parents were artists or architects and, you know, they got internships and things in high school and others just found it really easy to connect with fellow white peers as well and so yeah I found it quite tricky and after graduating 
I also experienced the same thing, but I guess on a larger scale where I saw the power of connections and I realised that that's something that I didn't really have access to. And I think sort of similar to that, I started to understand that the seeing yourself represented in an industry can be so powerful and give you so much confidence. That's not something I ever experienced. It was difficult for me to imagine my place in the industry and what it was. And I feel like people of colour, especially people of migrant backgrounds, really have to work twice as hard and be twice as excellent to get to where they are, all while not having those role models or mentors. And that can be disheartening at, at times. I really hope to see that change. And I think our collective is part of that change. When I was in uni, I always thought about like having a seat at that table, seeing where I belong. But I think the older I get, the more I realise that maybe I don't like that table. Like that table was made by white men mostly. And I started to question a lot of norms and practices in the industry. And I think part of my practice and part of this collective is like building our own new table that's inclusive and radical and collective in so many ways. That's a really beautiful response. Thank you so much for that, Fahana. Uh, Fasila, was there anything you wanted to add to what has already been said about, about the industry, the gaps or the lack of understanding or even just the lack of regard for people who aren't white and privileged and cis men? Yeah, well, I mean, I can only echo what Farhana said. I went to uni at UTS. I think anyone who's going through a, a design degree or an arts degree, um, visual arts degree, they can attest to the fact that everything that we're taught is taught through the lens of a cis white man. And it's quite interesting because that is held as a standard and that is held as what is acceptable and what is the height of design. And it does become interesting because as a designer, you almost have to unlearn or, or you're taught in a way that you feel restricted in your perspective because I think maybe what I have to give isn't actually of value and maybe it's unconventional or maybe I shouldn't explore my identity through my design. And actually what I found um, was that I very much lent into my culture and my identity being a separate thing to my work. In ways, it was great because it allowed for this common language between other designers and other creators but in other ways it was quite limiting and I found myself to be in that silo I think meeting everyone who's been in the collective has been transformational in the sense that I was like oh my gosh we've all had this experience interestingly I've never really looked at culture and identity until being in this collective through my creative practice and that's what's really transformed Going into like the gaps in the industry, I think the biggest one is actually the barriers for entry. Who is in that room? Me going to UTS, that's a privilege. I know that because there are other designers and other creatives who would have loved the experience to be able to go to a visual communication degree, but they couldn't because that ATAR is high and that requires you having really good education. And I echo what Prahana was saying around like, when you do make it, and like I'm conscious of that room that I, I'm in, 
I worked so hard to make sure that I wasn't underperforming because that would mean I would never make it. And I really pushed myself hard. And what was great about that was it allowed myself to be in rooms and spaces where someone like me, you wouldn't see them. And that was great. Um, But what it means is I'm looking at my peers in the collective even, and I'm like, not everyone had that opportunity. And I think the barrier for entry for design and art spaces is that it's based on who you know. I was privileged enough to know and meet these people through my connections from university and people recommending me. But that's not everyone's um, circumstances. And that's really the biggest gap. It's no secret that it's based on who you know. And that's quite disheartening to know. Having thought about now the gaps within the industry, how hard it is to exist within a place that's not made for you, what does it mean to have these intersectional community spaces that are created for and run by people within the community. May, I was wondering if you could touch on that. I think it's really important to have these spaces so that, you know, we can exist, you know, in a relaxed manner. We're not so hyper vigilant all the time, like thinking, am I the only, am I the other in the room? When we get together as the collective or when we go to events, you know, made particularly for people of color or different races, it's really awesome. We don't, I think we just feel like we can be our most authentic selves because we're mingling with all these different people. It's just a, a room full of different creatives from different backgrounds. And yeah, I just, I think it's a really positive thing to have. So I've been a freelance illustrator for the past year. It was just sort of a side hustle thing just after uni. Um, but now I'm actually, uh, I've been, you know, on the job hunt <laughs> looking to get into the industry. And I feel like I've never felt this way about myself before. I've never really seen myself as the other. Like, I I feel like everywhere I've gone and been, like, I'm pretty, like, I integrate well with everyone around me. I don't feel like I stand out like a sore thumb. But when I've been applying and I'm looking at my resume and it says my name, May Abuljabane, and, you know, on my experiences, I have a lot of things with, you know, working with Muslim women, people of color. And like on my portfolio, there's just a lot of a bunch of pictures of women in hijab and all this. And I can't help but feel, is this going to be a disadvantage? Is this is this going to, you know, when I look at all the companies that I'm applying to and I look at, you know, meet our team and I see a picture of just like white people. I'm like, is this going to, you know, I, I don't know. It, I, I hate that I thought that I that, that crosses my mind feel ashamed because I'm like no I'm proud that I'm a Muslim woman who's Palestinian Egyptian like yeah yeah it just crosses my mind and I hate that yeah so that's why I think having you know those spaces where I don't feel that way it's just such a stark difference I think that's really interesting what you've said just now like we've all sort of mentioned before this sort of white colonial system has set things up so that you do have those thoughts about your identity and how how what role that plays with within well in this context within so-called Australia so I think that it's nothing that you should feel bad or guilty about because I feel like it wasn't sort of your choice to have to think about these things in this way think about those tensions and the role that plays. Priscilla is there anything you wanted to add to that? So with our collective we actually was so mindful around this capitalist society that we function in. And actually, when we first got together, one of our intentions was 
we're all in roles that feed into this capitalist mindset and society where we're told that our creativity is a function for profit. And we wanted to be really intentional about creating a space where we're being creative and being mindful of how we contribute to the world around us in a non-capitalist way. Um, and we'll get into this later, but we're supporting each other through that. And we're also contributing back to the community and people that look like us and people that feel other in our spaces. And that's really core to what we're trying to create. So that was Fazilat speaking about rejecting the pressure to exploit their creativity as a means of production and profit, and instead prioritise supporting others and giving back to the community. If you would like to keep up to date with The Collective, you can follow them on Instagram at an.othercollective. To listen to the full interview, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. We will be right back with our next interview after these messages. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short from my dark eyes. Complex hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Sana Deswat is coordinator of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Sana has a background in peace and conflict studies and was an international human rights observer in Guatemala. Sana joined the anti-nuclear fight in 2011 after the walk away from uranium mining event, a 10-week 12.50km walk from Wiluna to Perth in solidarity with Aboriginal people to push for a ban on uranium mining in Western Australia. Sana spoke with Fung a few days ago about the upcoming art auction being held called 25 Years Since Jabiluka Blockade, No to AUKUS Art Auction. Thank you, Sana, for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Can you start by telling us about how you got involved in the Nuclear Free Collective? Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so... 12 years ago, 2011, Footprints for Peace organized a walk from Yaliri in Western Australia all the way down to Perth. I think it was 10 weeks, 1,200 kilometers. And um, 
we joined in the last three weeks and it was such a life-changing experience working with traditional owners on their land like denouncing uh, a proposed uranium mine which since has been rejected which is great news i think that those kind of experiences are kind of transformative and i i've been away um overseas for a while and when i came back i got back involved great thank you so much for that for those who are unfamiliar with the jabaluka blockade can you tell us about this fight led by the mira community yeah i was not here um in in the country either but what i've heard it's pretty emblematic on an international level people know about the jabaluka blockade and it just brought there was momentum and it brought a whole lot of people together it was the mira um traditional owners who called it and invited people to come and and protest the mine on their land and a lot of people took that invitation and big names as well like peter gareth and tom uren joined in that struggle and and it it went on for quite a few years and they they won it and at the moment the great news is that they're not planning on mining it again. So um, there's a small company that's still trying to keep it as an asset, but Rio Tinto is saying no, and that's a huge win, which should be the way it goes everywhere, but unfortunately we're not there yet. Yeah, definitely. It's been 25 years since the blockade. Can you tell us what are the sorts of things that you're reflecting on? Uh, You alluded to this just now, but there are still lots of fights that we're involved with and a lot of struggle there. So what are some of the things that you're concerned with at the moment? Yeah, so the the nuclear free movement has been quite good together at keeping nuclear away. Like Australia is the third biggest uranium miner in the world and a big exporter. And so there was all that potential, so to say, from a from an exploitative perspective. And the Australian community and, and especially led by traditional custodians have really kept that at bay. So there's there's legal bans against nuclear power and the mines there are a few mines unfortunately that haven't been able to be stopped yet. There's a new mine coming in coming out of care and maintenance, the honeymoon mine. At the end of this year, um, we are expecting it not to be a honeymoon, but a divorce um, very shortly. <laughs> but yeah, so there's there's been really good momentum and really good steady, steady fight against the nuclear industry in Australia, which can be quite aggressive. And I guess uranium and nuclear is in decline all the reactors are closing down. There's a handful that is being built. They're hugely expensive and are taking decades to be built. So there's there's not any perspective and the nuclear industry is kind of desperate to, to keep struggling to stay alive. And they're quite aggressive in their propaganda and the misinformation as that it should be a solution to climate change, which is very much not. So we're constantly fighting at the moment that misinformation and debunking. It's too slow, too expensive and too risky to to be any solution to climate change, apart from the fact that most reactors would be built really close to water because they take millions of liters of water and um, with rising sea levels and floods, that is a huge risk as well. So not 
not a solution and we are we are fighting that there's also a nuclear waste dump again we've been fighting nuclear waste dump after nuclear waste dump in the last 20 years currently one is proposed in kimba south australia the local traditional owners are opposing the mine but they have not been heard by the government they've been actually actively excluded in the community ballot and they have a legal case running at the moment to contest that so we are hopeful that people will be heard which would be quite great in when the government is talking about listening to aboriginal people and having a voice and listening to that voice while at the same time um, with a legal team fighting um, aboriginal owners for their right to be be counted in a community ballot for the, the nuclear waste dump that they are unanimously opposing. And the other thing is AUKUS. So yeah, that's a that's a big one. The nuclear submarines, um, they are gonna be nuclear propelled and not nuclear armed as we've been promised so far, but still there, there are better alternatives than that. And it the the problem is that it opens a potential door for waste, for nuclear expertise that we don't have in Australia at the moment. And it will take like a lot of problems, like a huge high level, potentially international waste dump will come with that. So we are trying to fight that at any cost and especially ring fence, whatever that military um, risk is at the moment or the, the, the military project from any other nuclear industry um, developing domestically. And it seems like the common commonality between all of these issues is that, of course, it's going to affect First Nations communities first and foremost, uh, and they're all, always on the front lines of these battles. And it's interesting that you were talking about how they're being actively excluded from any of these discussions by the government at the same time that there's this overarching sort of message from the government for a voice and yet they're actually doing they're spending they're spending millions on lawyers to fight mm. the traditions in their right to have a say yeah another thing that you were talking about was all the misinformation that was coming from the nuclear industry and and all the all those people and organizations that are trying to campaign really hard for it uh, as it's experiencing a decline you know one of the things that always comes up is like you said the nuclear waste and even though on the surface it says that it's you know nuclear energy and all of that is supposed to deal with or fight climate change there are all these disastrous impacts on the environment and on the people who live in those communities so it, it doesn't really do much does it no like I can I can see how especially young climate activists seem to be more susceptible to to the propaganda and the spin that's being um advocated by the nuclear industry and and i can see you know like if you, if you're looking at your future as a young person and you're kind of desperate and 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 such a golden nugget as it is presented is 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 promised to you you think oh that might be an option but it's actually replacing one terrible future with another terrible future um with waste and radioactive risk for hundreds or thousands of years and there are good alternatives around that are way quicker um, in in setting up. So yeah, I think it's really important to to 
that we as a as a nuclear movement, I think um, our demographic is aging, and it's really um, important to reach out to young generations that don't have the the historic memory of a Japaluka blockade and all the um, huge movement that was happening in the 70s and 80s in um, Australia. They don't remember Chernobyl or not even have really at the forefront of their mind mind what happened in in Fukushima, um, which is still having troubles with the, the, they're currently pumping um, millions of liters of radioactive water into the ocean. So yeah, that's, that's kind of one of our challenges as a, as a movement to connect to the younger generations and, and make sure that they don't fall for the, for the spin that is, is being presented because in the end, it's going to be a really long delay in which the status quo will be held with fossil fuels. Um, and so it's it's not a not a solution at all. Yeah. So the Nuclear Free Collective is putting on an art auction at the end of June, the theme of which is 25 years since Jabaluka blockade, no to AUKUS. Can you tell us more about this upcoming event? Yeah, so um, we're quite excited. Um, it hasn't been able to happen for a couple of years because of the pandemic. And the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth had been running these auctions for for years and they had gotten quite popular. So we're really excited to be able to hold one again and it's promising to be such a fun night. We've got some great art. Um, call out, the call is still open for artists that want to donate anything. So um, I'll give you the link in a minute so you can um, put it up on your website if anyone's interested in donating some art. But apart from that, we're going to have really great bands playing. There's going to be a kids banner painting session in the back, potentially a live street artist making an, an artwork at the spot um, because it is smack bam in the middle of the of the holidays, the kids holidays. So we've got a bit of it's child friendly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be a really fun night and people coming together after all this time. And so it's looking back on 25 years since since this emblematic Jabaluka blockade, but also in the current wave that we're in, saying a strong no to AUKUS, which is, yeah, a biggie at the moment. Can you tell us a bit more about the call-out? Are you looking for artists to donate their own work? Is it, yeah, anyone who has work at home that they want to donate? How does it work? A any, really. Um, it it is great to get some um, artworks from from a, around the theme, the AUKUS theme or the Diabolica blockade. So if people have been part of the blockade or have old photos lying around that they're happy to share, that would be great. But we're happy to receive any works. We've got some beautiful um, works from an Aboriginal artist down in Port Augusta coming up to us. And there's a, there's a bit of a mix of, of everything. So I think it will be a really good mix that will have something for everyone but anyone that has art they're not using <laughs> or or that want to make something we've still got a couple of weeks before the art auction so please get in touch fill in the form and and we'll be in touch because it's always great to have more yeah and then looking ahead what are some of the key priorities for the collective obviously AUKUS being a huge one but are there any other campaigns that you can tell our listeners about? 
Yeah, so the the nuclear waste dump um, in Kimba has been a big one. So we're we're continuing to support that. The Nuclear Free Collective have, has also been actively part of the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance, which is a, a black green alliance of groups that have through the years fought on different fronts. So it, it started around the time of the Jabaluka blockade with the mirror um traditional owners and then people from the different dump sites and fighting the different mines like the BHP Olympic Dam have been joining that um alliance and um people also that have been um victims of the British nuclear tests that happened which a lot of Australians surprisingly don't know about or know very little about and it, that, that's a reality this year is 70 years since some of those tests happened and and communities especially aboriginal communities that were living in the area are still feeling the effects generations after so it's all of that and of course working together with the international campaign for the prohibition of nuclear weapons and trying to promote the 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 treaty the ban treaty to be signed by our current government which would be great anthony albanese has been a great uh, championing <laughs> championing the the nuclear ban treaty in the past before co- becoming a prime minister and and recently at hiroshima when he visited as part of the g7 he he was confirming how important it was and and his commitment to get rid of nuclear weapons so we're really hopeful that in this term um the government will sign the, the ban treaty great yeah we'll be keeping a close eye on that one to make sure it yeah. happens just lastly, Sana, can you tell us exactly where will the art auction be held and what date, just so listeners can can note it down in their diaries? Yes, please save the date. So it's the 30th of June, which is a Friday night. Um, the viewings will be open at five o'clock at Catalyst Social Centre, which is on um, 144, 146 Sydney Road in Coburg. Um, so it's a bit north of there and it's a really nice space. So come along, come and have a dance, come and listen to some music and, and look at some amazing art. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast, Sana. We'll make sure to include all those details about the art auction in our show notes. Thank you so much for having me. That was Sana speaking to Fung about the history of nuclear-free resistance in so-called Australia and the art auction coming up on the 30th of June to raise money for the collective's national nuclear-free campaign work. If you would like to submit artwork for the auction, please go to our show notes after the show to find the Google form. We will also have event details and other information up on our website. And make sure you tune in to The Radioactive Show on Saturdays, 10am to 10.30am for current news and information on nuclear, peace and energy issues. That brings us to the end of our show this morning. Uh, it's been a big show. We started off uh, listening to a episode, an excerpt from an episode of Dirt Radio where Alana Mountain speaks with Eva Davis-Jones, a citizen scientist and forest activist, about the new protest laws that have come into effect in Victoria. We then heard from Nicole Calms from Consenting Cities, um, which is an interactive experience by Monash Uni's XYX Lab, asking how we can address gendered inequality and improve life on the streets for women and gender diverse people. We then heard an excerpt from Solidarity Breakfast where Annie McLaughlin speaks with uh, 
Catherine Strong from Extinction Rebellion. We then spoke, we then heard from Fung's interview uh, with another collective on Women of the Line, a collective of Muslim women creatives that navigate the intersection of faith, identity, and culture, and just ended there with Sana from Friends of the Earth, talking to us about the upcoming art auction being held called 25 Years Since Jabiluka Blockade, No to AUKUS Art Auction. Next up is Accent of Women. As always, thank you for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.